A car is never just a car. Kelly Blue Book knows it's so much more than that. It's your commuting chariot, your road trip refuge, your I just need a reason to get out of the house. Your car is there for everything. And for everything car, there's Kelly Blue Book. Need a new set of wheels? Price it on Kelly Blue Book. Problem under the hood? Fix it with Kelly Blue Book. Can another car do the job better? Trade it or sell it on Kelly Blue Book. We're here mile after mile, moment after moment. Price it, fix it, trade it, sell it. KBB.com. Visit kellybluebook.com to get the journey started. The first vote by mail ballots are hitting people's mailboxes in the earliest in-person early voting starts this week. Do you know how you're voting? If your answer is it's September, I haven't thought about it. I don't have a Halloween costume yet. This is the week to get your shit together, at least on the voting part. Maybe the costume too. Voter suppression efforts have ramped up following the 2020 election, making it even more critical to ensure that every American has access to the ballot box. At Vote Save America, you can find the most up-to-date information on what you need to make sure your vote is counted in all 50 states and D.C. Use your ballot ready tool to request your ballot. Find out how you can return it or get a reminder for when in-person early voting locations become available in your state. To win in November, it's going to take every single one of us making our plan to vote, getting involved and reminding everyone we know to do the same. Once you've made your plan to vote, visit votesaveamerica.com slash every last vote to find out what you can do next, including donating to the Every Last Vote Fund to directly support the work of community organizations, organizers, and volunteers in states that are actively working to battle disenfranchisement in communities of color, including Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, and more. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Uh, remember last week when I said we should not talk about the NFL season at all? You can talk about the Jets if you'd like. I, I look uh, at us, man. Historic comeback. This podcast is yeah. two and zero in week two. I yeah. take it all back. Yeah, I take it all back, Ben. Let's enjoy it while we have it. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's really I, not going to last. Again, sorry, Mike O'Neill. Yes, who's Browns got? Trumped. I'm not sorry. I mean, if you signed Deshaun Watson, uh, I'm not saying Mike O'Neill supported that. Yeah, signing. I don't think he's the GM. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, by association. <laughs> the Flacco not, era. Not your fault, Mike. It's I the mean. Joe Flacco yeah. era. Uh, ben, we got a great show. For Michael O'Neill and all the other listeners yeah, today, yeah, yeah, yeah. we're going to talk about Russian intelligence uh, and information operations, President Biden in Taiwan, El Salvador, U.S. policy towards Central and South America, the Queen's funeral, Speaker Pelosi visits Armenia, uh, protests in Iran, Hungary, Saudi Arabia, and the scandal rocking the international chess world. And then, Ben, you did today's interview. What are folks going to learn? So I talked to Ilya Panamarenko, who's uh, a defense reporter for the Kiev Independent. You guys may have seen him. He's kind of omnipresent on on Ukraine Twitter. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, reports from the front lines. Um, great reporter. We talked about, you know, what has been the impact of Ukraine's offensive. How has that actually changed things on the battlefield? Uh, what kinds of weapons uh, Ukraine needs, uh, which I thought was really interesting discussion because hmm. it wasn't exactly what you think. Uh, and uh, also kind of what is success for Ukraine? What, where are they trying to get to on what timeline? Um, so I think he gave a really good nuanced answer on, you know, people hear Ukraine talk about taking back every inch of territory. Mm -hmm. they, they know they're not going to do that. But he talked about how do you basically destroy Russia's capacity to wage war in Ukraine? And, and how do you look for markers of success on the way to that? So I thought it was the, maybe the best answer I've heard yet on what military kind of victory looks like for you. That is super interesting. And so for, for listeners, you're going to hear the Ukraine war news all in the interview, and we'll do other things at the top today. Um, but also, Ben, before we get to the news, we, we have our own YouTube channel, apparently. We do. I'm, uh, you know, You're one about home to be a star. on the internet. Yeah. YouTube.com slash pod save the world. We're coming for Dan Pfeiffer. 
because full episodes of the show are going to post on Wednesday and then shareable clips will post throughout the week. So please smash the subscribe button. Smash the button, share those clips, you know, um, yeah. I'll subscribe. Educate your friends. Also, yeah. uh, the election is creeping ever closer. If you do not have a plan to vote yet, please visit votesaveamerica.com slash every last vote to make a plan and tell your friends to do the same. You can also donate if you want to the Every Last Vote Fund. That helps organizers in key states who are out there fighting the good fight and doing good work. Um, so we're going to talk about the war later in your interview, but I did want to start by talking about Russia because there were a couple of very interesting stories about Russian intelligence operations that ran in, in the news last week. The first was based off of, not surprisingly, uh, a U.S. intelligence community report, which found that since 2014, Russia has secretly funneled at least $300 million to foreign political parties and candidates in more than two dozen countries. The, uh, the U.S. intelligence community assesses that Russia's goal is to weaken democratic systems and promote politicians and parties aligned with their interests. No surprise there. Um, countries where this has happened include Albania, Montenegro, Madagascar, and possibly Ecuador. The tactics can be as brazen as handing cash to a candidate or more subtle like sponsoring think tanks. The report didn't get into uh, Russian activities in the U.S. because, as you recall, that's been covered, I think, uh, <laughs> elsewhere. But the State Department did directly notify 100 U.S. embassies uh, in foreign countries and suggest ways to push back. Uh, and they also said that this is just the tip of the iceberg, they think, in terms of the spending. So... Ben, we knew about a lot of what was in this report anecdotally through press reporting over time. But I did think it was powerful to see all these Russian foreign activities kind of bundled up and given uh, a price tag. I'm curious how impactful or helpful you think this report was and the guidance from the State Department for countries where, you know, Russia is kind of mucking around in their politics. And like, do you think this was news to a lot of them? I think that Russia for some time has kind of blown through any guardrails around how it throws money and intimidation and disinformation around to impact other countries' politics. Uh, there was another great story in the Times recently, too, about Russian trolls basically really fueling the divisions in the Women's March. I want to do that um, one second. Okay, that's yeah. yeah that, was, so, that was amazing. Chilling, right? And, and I make that point because I do think warning like this and providing information like this can matter in certain places, right? So in like Europe, there's clearly antenna up for this. Mm -hmm. You know, like European countries, including some more recent democracies, right, in the Balkans and other places, I think being specific and describing the influence campaigns and leaving breadcrumbs for investigators or the public or the media to follow up on this can be helpful there because people kind of want to resist this dynamic to some extent. I think that the same is probably true in you know parts of Latin America where Russia may be showing up and, and trying to distort politics. Um, that said, though, you know when you get to out and out corruption, whether it's a far right political movement in Europe, or whether it's you know we've seen reports of Wagner Group guys in Africa and Madagascar and uh, and the Congo. Well, you know what? Like bags of cash are going to speak louder than American intelligence reports For in sure. those places, right? So like it's useful, it creates antibodies, it gives people some tools, information to resist this, but only if they want to resist it. And the rest of it, I think we have to understand as part of the landscape geopolitically of Russia trying to throw its weight around. I think part of what was notable about Russia being somewhat isolated in Uzbekistan at this you know uh, meeting of the Shanghai Cooperation Council, which is kind of a Beijing created entity. Great meeting. Great meeting. Good swag bags to the conference. You know, you I don't want to overstate stated, but Putin got a little shade thrown at him by, you know, the G, Putin acknowledged his concerns. Modi said now is not time for war. But not just that, the Central Asian leaders were a little bit less kind of, you know, 
sycophantic to Putin totally. as they might have been. So it, it does feel like as Russia loses some some of that luster as a bully that's been punched back now, they can still do this kind of influence stuff, but it might not carry the same weight. Yeah. So you mentioned this story about Russia and the Women's March. This information came from a nonprofit called uh, the Advanced Democracy Inc. They did an analysis of these like Russian troll factory tweets and they shared it with the New York Times. Here's what they found or some of what they found. Over the course of 18 months, 152 Russian accounts sent 2,642 tweets about Linda Sarsour, who's one of the original founders of the Women's March. Those tweets were part of a broader effort to amplify any controversies about the group, its founders, to exacerbate divisions within the broader movement, especially racial divides, and then to uh, attack feminism generally, basically. Uh, These Russian trolls, they posed as black women critiquing white feminists. They started the hashtag to rename the Women's March and like suggested degrading titles like Lonely Cat Lady March. That's a quote. But what seems to have found the biggest audience were efforts to call Linda Sarsour things like, quote, pro-ISIS, anti-USA, Jew-hating Muslim, end quote. That's because right-wing figures in America giddily retweeted this stuff and just sort of spread Russia's propaganda and did their bidding. So, you know, stepping back a minute, I mean, it, it's hard, again, as we felt in 2016, to measure the net effect of what Russia did. They didn't create these broader social divisions in the country or in the Women's March even. They just exploited them and poured gas on them. But it's quite clear that these activities uh, drastically increased the amount of abuse targeted at Linda Sarsour and made her life hell. Twitter eventually suspended 3,841 Russian accounts in the summer of 2018. But while they existed, these trolls cranked out content like Black Lives Matter. They focused on Colin Kaepernick, players kneeling, the Mueller probe. So again... It adds to our understanding, I think, of something that we knew was happening. But I think, again, the scope of the activity and the degree to which uh, the Russians built on the election interference in 2016 and moved into this broader cultural space was pretty eye-opening for me. Yeah, I, I, I think we know the broad outlines of the story, but it's really useful to look at these details because they confirm and build on a few things. The first is, as you said, Russia doesn't like invent these narratives. They're They're pretty good at looking at where the far right media is going in the U.S. and and they just come in with a you know thing of gasoline and pour it around mm-hmm. and light a bunch of matches, because uh, frankly that's propaganda they know well because they share the, those views right. Yeah, they love it. So mocking the women's march and creating divisions and painting a Muslim woman as a terrorist, you know that's pretty easy for the Russians to do. Um, I wouldn't minimize the importance of it though because re- the the thing that jumps out in the article is the scale of this was pretty profound. You know like things that might have been like minor controversies that passed on social media or that had one or two right-wing articles became months-long crises in the Women's March, Mm -hmm. you know? And this was a big reason why, you know? And so I think we make a mistake sometimes after the the kind of collective conventional wisdom in parts of Washington was that the Mueller stuff was overcranked, which I don't think has ever really been been the case. But sometimes we, we minimize just how much this Russian social media type campaign matters. I mean, I I remember feeling, Tommy, like I'd look at my own mentions, which were nearly, not nearly as bad as this, but back when I was really in the eye of the fire in like 2017 and 18, when I was being accused of being in the deep state and running conspiracy theories, you know, you, you'd see a bunch of stuff in your mentions that the English isn't exactly right. Mm-hmm, and for sure. the person has like... 15 followers, but yeah. it, it still creates a volume. The only other thing I'd add Tweeting is, on Moscow time exclusively. Yeah, yeah <laughs> tweeting overnight. Real you subtle. Know? Yeah. Uh, the last thing, though, is it It also kind of... It's a tell that they went after the Women's March like this. Like, well, that, that why? You know, um, 
are they trying to help Trump and this is a Trump opponent? Are they just trying to radicalize kind of the right wing yeah. male toxicity that they like? I mean, just shut down a progressive social movement and, and try to strip it. Yeah, pieces, of, but know? that's interesting. What, yeah. Why are they threatened by the Women's March? I, I think that 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 is, you know, it's not as obvious as why would they want to elect Donald Trump? And, and I think it speaks to their wanting to not only create societal divisions, but to really specifically create societal divisions that fracture the left and mobilize the far right. Yeah. Also, I mean, I remember t- talking to Jake Sullivan about this when he was on the Clinton campaign in 2016, before he was the national security advisor. I mean, initially, if you were to blame Russia or Russian disinformation, you were essentially accused of wearing a tinfoil hat. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. and I think this kind of nonpartisan academic research is very valuable. Yeah. Um, to, to push back on that. Ben, switching gears to the current president. So President Biden did a sit down with 60 Minutes recently. There were a bunch of headlines that spun out of this interview. Uh, very few of them were helpful. <laughs> um, <laughs> 60 Minutes is always a good It's like tough, that, man. Yeah. You, you talk to Scott Pelley or whoever for like 48 hours yeah. and you know there's a lot they can choose. But there's stuff about the pandemic, whether he'll run for re-election. Um, but this exchange between Biden and Scott Pelley caught our eye. Here's a clip. Would US forces defend the island? Yes, if in fact there was an unprecedented attack. After our interview, a White House official told us U.S. policy has not changed. Officially, the U.S. will not say whether American forces would defend Taiwan. But the commander-in-chief had a view of his own. So unlike Ukraine, to be clear, sir, U.S. forces, U.S. men and women, would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion? Yes. So, Ben, this is, I think, literally the fourth time Biden has leaned way further and said that the United States would go to war directly with China over Taiwan. And then the White House walks it back. What the hell do you think is going on here? Well, first of all, Scott Pelley has like the best announcer voice. Yeah. Uh, I just have to say syrupy bass tones. But uh, anyway, on on Biden, um, I've been like deeply immersed in Taiwan. And, you know, as I mentioned, you guys, I I have a kind of writing project. So I'm going to share my like views and opinions about where to go a, a bit. But I will say this about what I think is going on. First of all, why does it matter? Just to, again, give the background, right? So when the U.S. recognized the People's Republic of China as, 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 as when we essentially flipped diplomatic recognition from Taiwan, the Republic of China, to the People's Republic of China, we left this ambiguous as to whether or not we would defend Taiwan if China invaded and sought to compel it to join China. And we have the Taiwan Relations Act, which was passed in 1979. Joe Biden voted for it. Um, And what that says is it commits the United States to provide Taiwan with arms sufficient to defend itself. So it's kind of murky. We'll arm them and we, we want them to be able to defend themselves, but we don't come out and say that we'll defend them ourselves. The entirety of the policy is ambiguous. Yeah, Strategic well, ambiguity and what it means, what you need to defend yourself. So like literally, exactly, the name of the policy is strategic ambiguity because you want China to think we might come to Taiwan's defense, um, but you don't want to maybe trigger the Chinese to do something because we've made that statement or you know, you don't want to trigger uh, Taiwan declaring independence. That, that's the theory behind strategic ambiguity. Um, and, and what's interesting here, though, is that uh, you have a, a trend, right? You said this four times. And so it's not like Biden said this once and they came out and said, no, the policy hasn't changed. This has happened four times. So clearly Biden either believes this 
Um, and that's, you know, that's certainly his right as president to believe it. Um, or it's kind of like he's at the hawkish end of strategic ambiguity. Like it may be, I'm beginning to think maybe they want, you know, hey, like, this on purpose. Yeah, nothing's changed, but but something has changed. Biden keeps reaffirming this. You know what I'm saying? It's like- It's certainly it's, confusing. It's, it's certainly, <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I, I, all I can think is they must prepare these yeah. Right. I mean, so Every time. he must know what he's doing. You know, this, at this is point. coming up. If he'd only done this once or twice. So to me, it's turning the dial on this. But I think watch this space. It's one of the reasons why I'm writing about it, because Congress has a bill called the Taiwan Policy Act that aims to significantly ramp up the amount of military assistance we provide to, to Taiwan that, that addresses some of the kind of symbolic issues around Taiwan's status and representation. You have, uh, you know, these comments from Biden getting attention, obviously. And you have the Chinese, you know, particularly in the back end of the Pelosi visit, uh, undertaking all these threats. I mean, Taiwan is going to be a central focus for American foreign policy in the world, really, in the next few years. And and, and I think this is this question of whether these statements are actually a formal policy change or not are are those questions are going to have to be answered beyond just clarifications from spokespeople after interviews? You know? Yeah, it's so weird. I mean, imagine the fourth time you call the walk it back. I mean, he must just not want to. I mean, he must believe it, right? He's just I, like, I mean, you guys can yeah. do what you need to do after this is over. I'm going to say what I'm going to say. I, I'm going to say what I think, which is I believe we should defend Taiwan, which which is a perfectly legitimate thing. It, it's just a question of I, I do think they'll need to to be specific at some point about what is that. Not what does that mean in practice, but like, are are they are they really not changing policy? Yeah, I wonder yeah. what the calls are like from you know allies in the region, Japan, or the right? Taiwanese, or so J- whoever. Japan's yeah. a good example because Japan hosts you know in Okinawa a lot of the forces that might be called upon to join a Taiwan contingency. So this is not just a U.S. Taiwan China issue, no. you know. And I think Japan's been leaning further into saying they would defend. Uh, Taiwan in their own sort of strategic policy directions. In some too. of their policy yeah. directions, but then they they get a little you know uh, uncomfortable with tensions ratcheting up at times. So it, th- yeah. there's, there's a lot to be watched here. Agreed. Um, the other policy that I think all of us are watching closely is uh, the Biden administration policy towards Central and South America, in particular the impact of immigration. And I want to talk about El Salvador for a minute for a couple of reasons. First, there was uh, a fantastic profile of Nayib Bukele, the president of El Salvador, by Jonathan Blitzer in The New Yorker. Um, it's worth reading if you have the time. If you don't, here's a couple quick highlights. So just so folks know, I mean, the, El Salvador is getting more, not less authoritarian. The National Assembly recently passed a law that criminalizes news reports, like reporting on gang violence. So journalists can get up to 10 years in jail if they reproduce or transmit information that might have come from gang sources or could panic the public, whatever that means. It sounds like something Putin would do. Um, it is seemingly an effort to prevent reporting on secret deals that get cut over time between the government and gangs. Every administration has done it to try to ratchet down the murder rate. Um, several journalists have had to leave the country after being attacked by Bukele or his staff. Bukele also was like an early adopter of Bitcoin. He's a big Bitcoin guy, changed his fucking profile, the, the laser eye thing. That has gotten him a lot of rich friends in the U.S. and invited to you know tech conferences in Miami. But it's worth noting that El Salvador's embrace of Bitcoin has not helped their citizens much. Um, 86% of businesses have never conducted a Bitcoin transaction, and Bukele has repeatedly used state funds to buy Bitcoin. Those holdings are now worth half of what he paid for them because the price has dropped. So the two points I want to just make is, one, if you really believe in Bitcoin, that's cool. Like, good for you. More power to you. Like, keep working on this stuff. But you should absolutely not bet on this guy. He is bad news. He's an authoritarian. 
Two, what I think the broader public needs to understand is that he's an incredibly popular authoritarian. Um, he's the most popular leader in Latin America because Bukele makes this a show of brutally cracking down on gang violence. And it's what people want because it's such a dangerous place to live. And that means, you know, the, there's a lot of collateral damage, innocent people getting arrested, innocent people getting killed. But Ben, I mean, you flagged this, this broader trend about how authoritarianism and this approach to governing is really growing in their region. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because I, my, my takeaway is we focused on Bukele a bit on the podcast and, and he's just as autocratic and, and you know, Bitcoin bro-y as, as we've said. But I think you put your finger on the important point that he's quite popular, but he's also, there's a methodical transitioning of that country into an autocracy. Bitcoin is just kind of a bit of a sideshow to that. He's changing the law so he can run for another term in office. Uh, he's rounded up tens and tens of thousands of people. He's silencing the media. So this is happening. And, you know, early in the Biden administration, their, you know, line that Kamala Harris was put in the lead for, not the easiest assignment to give someone, mm -hmm. was essentially the way to stem migration to our border is to fight corruption and improve governance in Central America, which is undoubtedly correct. Uh, like, I think that, that 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 would undoubtedly help slow migration. I think what we're seeing, though, is that the trend lines, and this is not really the fault of the Biden administration, it's what's happening. The trend lines in Central America are, are really moving in a, in, in a rapid, deteriorating autocratic direction. So you've got you know, Bukele in El Salvador basically turning this country in a bit of a cult of personality where he doesn't really want to listen to the U.S. and he's sidelining critics. Right? Yeah, and like shit posting and tweeting back at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in the yeah. U.S. if they criticize him and stuff. Like that's his approach. To great effect, by the way, saying yeah, like, you know, love it. You're, you're not, you know, you're, you know, you're not the empire anymore. Get the hell out of here. You've got Danny Ortega has turned Nicaragua into like a full on autocratic one party state. The Guatemalan, who is supposed to be like the person we could work with, the Guatemalan president, is basically in the process of like rounding up and arresting the very people that we would want him, you know, to be working oh, good. with. Um, there, there, there's just not there, there's no success story down there. And again, I, I this is not like the Kamala Harris's fault. This is just the direction that politics have been going in these broken places, and it is leading to more migration to our border. And I, I think that part of what we had to recognize is the kind of strategy that the Biden team has been putting in place is like a 10 year strategy. Like we, we can't expect to transform places in a year or two years, 10 year investments in civil society and governance and any corruption strategies coupled with political approaches that seek to nudge things in, in more positive directions around things like elections and free media. Can can pay a dividend, but like right now, we we should be honest. Like this this region is moving in the wrong direction at a pretty rapid pace when it comes to issues around democracy and the rule of law, which are a part of you know our border strategy. Yeah, and like in, in no surprise, it's leading people to leave these countries. I mean, the U.S. Yeah. Border Patrol recorded six hundred thousand apprehensions of Guatemalan, Honduran, Salvadoran, uh, and Nicaraguan migrants in the first ten months of the fiscal year. It's just a massive exodus. And, you know, the, the, there's a Times report on sort of the broader U.S. approach to Central America that noted like, well, the U.S. hasn't sanctioned these countries yet or issued any indictments through this anti-corruption task force. And like indictments, fine. But man, like, how are you going to sanction I don't, yeah, these places? I don't agree with that. Right. I, I see the concern. But like 
piling a bunch of sanctions on like El Salvador and Guatemala is not going to fix El Salvador and Guatemala. Like, I actually think we have to be finding some ways to talk to these countries to figure out who we can work with, either in the government or outside the government, to to work with other countries, Mexico and 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 you know Colombia and other countries in in the region. Like, but the idea that we're just going to you know, do to them what we did to Cuba and Venezuela. Well, that 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 hasn't worked. No, that's not going <laughs> you know, well. It's not working, and it's like, being demagogued yeah. by right wing authoritarians in the United States, yeah. like Ron DeSantis sending people to Martha's Vineyard. Yeah. So if there's what you know, if yes, if there's something worth sanctioning because it's an egregious violation of something by you know like money laundering or human rights violations by an individual, I'm not saying don't do that, but I'm ha- saying having like a sanctioned strategy to to fixing Central America, I don't think it's going to work. Yeah. I, I think we've got to get in there and engage and, and work on this and, and, and have realistic expectations and rhetoric around what can be achieved here and and be, you know, and deal with the border in, in a multifaceted way because bizarrely, Ron DeSantis, you know, people like that have the maximum incentive for things to be maximally fucked up in Central mm-hmm. America because exactly. they want people like this coming to the border. Absolutely. Um, so the DeSantis story has been dominating the news uh, this past week. The other story that has been dominating the news somehow shockingly still is queen elizabeth ii's <laughs> yeah, funeral yeah. it's like roadblock cable um then she had two thousand guests at her funeral service can you imagine doing that seating chart it's like the wedding yeah, from hell yeah. uh it was packed with british and foreign royals you know like kings of god knows where uh past and present politicians and heads of state um i saw that donald trump used the occasion as an opportunity to flag that Biden had a shitty seat yeah. <laughs> and said that it would never happen to him. So yeah. I, I, admittedly, that's kind of funny. Um, some Brits waited in line for, you know, an entire day to pay their respects. French President Emmanuel Macron might have been there incognito. Was that a real story? Uh, or was that just a guy who looked like know. Macron? Yeah, well, like, let's just say there's a lot of enthusiasm here for the Queen. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was an Australian TV crew that didn't recognize the new British Prime Minister, Liz Truss, and said that she was, quote, maybe a minor royal. So yeah. that was funny for everybody. Uh, people were bored enough about their lives, I guess, that they got excited about a spider on the queen's casket. Ben, <laughs> yeah. any final thoughts from you as hopefully we lay this uh, entire story to rest? Well, we did get excited. Uh, like Resistance Twitter did about a fly on Mike Pence for like God damn it, you're right. Days. That's so, so like, embarrassing. Yeah, it's pretty embarrassing. Um, I my, my two main takeaways, one petty and one like aiming for profundity, uh, the Liz trusting was notable. Like she was not really like a, I don't know, a, a figure of note at this event. Like you, you have to think that if that this happened like deep into Tony Blair's tenure, or even like a, a solid mid David Cameron, like you would have at least kind of noticed the British Prime Minister. She kind of completely faded into the. I'm surprised Boris didn't try to try to climb into the casket. Uh, he kind of tried to elbow his way in uh, when they were coming into the Abbey, I noticed. Uh, and he had to kind of be directed with the other formers. To the stuff. bar yeah, where he belongs. To, to the, yeah. Uh, but my, my main takeaway in reading all this stuff, and I, and I even went back and listened to the Dan Snow conversation we had on the bonus episode, is that part of what was going on here is like the Brits mourning Queen Elizabeth, but kind of mourning, and I really don't mean this to sound harsh, but like their own demise as an empire yeah like she was the last vestige of their status right so that you go from being like 100 years ago you're the absolute most powerful country in the world you know then you lose that and you lose a lot like your colonies and you lose kind of the juice in the world stage and suddenly you're showing up in meetings and people are less interested in what you have to say and then you're like in the european union and you're resentful of that and then you leave that and you're and queen elizabeth through it all was this last 
person who was the most famous person in the world and she represented all this old glory. And it's not like it's coming back. Like, even if you're like a huge stand for Charles, like, I just don't think that's happening. If you are, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you should question some things, yeah. first of all. So I feel like they were kind of collectively mourning yeah, I feel, I, like the dusk of empire. And, I have the same and, take. and I think that's fair. And as Americans, you're probably at the beginning of that process. Like, there may be some event in our lifetime that, that, that it won't quite play the same same role, but um, I don't know. There's there's a great scene in a John Le Carre book, The Honorable Schoolboy, where the main character, the Brit, is is in an American base in um, Thailand the day that 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 Vietnam falls, South Vietnam falls, and and the American asks if he can join the club of of washed up empires. <laughs> it's, it's a pretty hilarious scene. But anyway, yeah. like, I don't know. There's a bit of that going on. Uh, we'll always have Love Island. Did you see that there was a report that the queen liked to play Wii bowling and had a gold-plated Wii? I didn't see that. I'm just sort of cataloging. You're, you're, you're deeper in the I'm just cataloging all the dumb things. I also saw that Prince William inherited a village called Poundbury and has since <laughs> become the biggest private landowner in Britain for some reason. Axios reported this out, uh, I assume, because it was funny. There's way too much corgi content, too. And I say that as mm. a dog lover, mm. you know. That's a corgi stand. Uh, okay, let's take a quick break. When we come back, more show. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Okay, we talked briefly last week about how fighting uh, had again flared up between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, many experts believe that uh, Azerbaijan attacked Armenian forces near the disputed Nagorno-Karabakh region because Russia usually keeps the peace there. And Azerbaijan assumed the Russians were too distracted with the U- war in Ukraine to step in. The good news is that a ceasefire has at least temporarily stopped the fighting, although that came after several hundred soldiers were killed. But then over the weekend, Ben, Speaker Pelosi visited Armenia with a congressional delegation and delivered remarks uh, where she blamed uh, Azerbaijan for initiating the attacks. I I assume she's right. Um, Pelosi's visit was planned before this latest fighting started, uh, but she is the highest ranking official, U.S. official, to visit Armenia since its independence in 1991. Just curious what you make of Pelosi's kind of recent high wire act (laughs) diplomatic activities, right? Like Taiwan, Armenia, like she's not going to like, I don't know, the Bahamian embassy to hang out. Or, no, you know, she's got a bucket France. list. I mean, look, you have to presume Nancy Pelosi thinks this could be her last few months in Congress. And these are issues she's worked on for a long time. Um, Taiwan, we've talked about. But Armenia, like she has been a part you know, of the California delegation and part of the effort to recognize formally the Armenian genocide, which mm-hmm. they finally got done legislatively uh, in this in this Congress. And yeah, she's going out, like leaving it all in the field. Like she's she's flying right into the eye, eye of the storm, and 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 the views she's expressing are not a surprise um, of kind of solidarity with Armenia. It, again, it's a very complicated circumstances geopolitically in some respects because Russia's more the the support of Armenia um, than obviously Turkey of Azerbaijan. But uh, I'm glad that things calmed down. It seemed like the U.S. Yeah, you know, it was pretty intensively. Some quiet, yeah, Tony made some calls. Tony Blinken, some quiet, intense State. diplomacy yeah, there happened. Go. There was an envoy for this, Phil Reeker, who we worked with, who's a good dude. Um, but this could blow again at any time. I'd keep an eye on this. You know. For sure. For sure. Um, so the UN General Assembly is happening this week. The focus is on Ukraine, but I imagine a lot of Iran related topics will also come up. So we want to turn there. Uh, there have been major protests across Iran this week, started on Monday, I think, in the response to the brutal, brutal murder uh, of a young woman named Masa Amini while she was being held in police custody. Uh, Amini, well, I think she's 22, 24, it's very young. She'd been accused of breaking Iran's uh, female dress code and was beaten by the so-called morality police. The law requires that women wear a headscarf uh, over their hair and generally dress modestly. Uh, they accused her of breaking these codes. It seems like they're full of shit. Yeah, it seemed like a bunch of fucking creepy total goons. Goons, yeah. Um, but in response, we were seeing just massive protests in Iran, uh, the biggest I think we've seen in years. And security forces, you know, per usual, are firing live rounds in some places in response. This all comes, uh, as I mentioned at the top, as uh, Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi 
is traveling to New York for the UN General Assembly. There's news reports that the supreme leader of Iran might be having health problems. Uh, there are, you know, widespread calls now in, in Iran then to shut down the morality police. This is all reminding me of 2009 yeah. when a young woman named Nada was shot by security forces at an anti-government protest or demonstration. Obama at the time uh, was pressed to comment. He was criticized uh, loudly for not saying more. The concern that we had that Obama had in the White House was we didn't want to make what was an Iranian-led protest movement about Obama or about the U.S. I imagine Biden is in kind of a similar situation right now. Anything you think we learned from that 2009 experience that could apply today? Well, yeah. I mean, I think we got that wrong at the time. I, I Well, and I, I I rarely say this, but it was, it was something I didn't agree with at the time. As you remember, Tom, I, I tended to get kind of stirred up by, by the passions, by, by, by passions. but um, I, I, I think I, I, to, I will say this and I say this not is this not a negative comment about Joe Biden in any way, shape or form. It really is not like it, with Obama. It always kind of was a bigger deal if he spoke out about something. You know, I just think globally, like there was just a bit of a bigger megaphone. Um, and and some of the protesters were holding signs like Obama, where are you? Kind yeah, of thing, I remember right? that. Yeah. And so. So uh, I think it's less of a choice for Biden. I think you've seen pretty forceful statements. I, I mean, here's the issue. Um, this is a banner fucking week for the Iranians, right? You've got these these absolute, you know, fascistic extremist creeps, like, you know, beating this uh, woman. Um, you've got the president of Iran saying he has to, like, research the Holocaust. Oh, my God. Uh, I saw that for yeah, two like, seconds on the way Whenever in. you get an Iranian talking about, he like, He did 60 Minutes, too, right? And you yeah, got to press like, on this. Just the worst kind of what bullshit imaginable. Yeah. Um, and, and then this, the Supreme Leader's health, like, which could spark a succession. You know, this is very complicated because on the one hand, yeah, people in Iran are absolutely fed up with this kind of morality police bullshit. Their lives are not getting better. There's clearly going to be pressure from within, from like the middle class and younger generation. But at the same time, the scenario you're concerned about is this could lead to a place where Iran just goes all in on basically being a creepy autocracy that gets a nuclear weapon, you know, to mm -hmm. to be its insurance policy. So I think if you're the Biden people, you want to to speak out on anything. You want to establish a precedent. You're gonna you're gonna lay down markers on everything you see. You're gonna call out human rights and Holocaust denial. Um, and uh, but you also want to kind of be very attuned to like, where does this go? What direction does this tip if you start to see fractures in running society? Because what you don't want is the worst case outcome is like in two years. Yeah, there have been protests and uprisings and the Supreme Leader's dead. But somehow on the back end of that, you've got the most revanchist, yeah. uh, creepiest version of the regime with a nuclear weapon. Just hardens yeah. more, yeah. Uh, staying in sort of the uh, the creep bucket, uh, two updates out of Hungary, which listeners of the show know is governed by uh, a right-wing authoritarian government led by Viktor Orban. So last week, the Hungarian government decreed that women seeking abortion services will now be forced to listen to a fetal heartbeat before receiving them. This is very similar to bills passed in states like Georgia and Texas, by the way. Uh, I should note that it's, it is whether or not what you hear when you get an ultrasound at like six weeks, uh, whether that's an actual fetal heartbeat is very much in dispute. Some think it's just electrical activity produced by the embryo that sort of reads as a heartbeat sound through the machine. Just sort of worth noting that. Um, but the second update out of Hungary is that on Sunday, the European Commission proposed suspending billions of dollars in funding to Hungary over concerns about corruption. 
And last week, the European Parliament declared that Hungary had become, quote, a hybrid regime of electoral autocracy. So, Ben, I want to put these stories together because I don't think it's a coincidence that Hungary is passing these super draconian abortion laws as it slides into autocracy. I think that's part of a pattern we're all seeing. But it's cur- I'm curious what you think should happen next. Like, is, is Hungary now finally on the glide path to getting punished or actually kicked out of the EU? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's 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 overdue. And you know, we've been talking in, in some of these previous stories about like, when do you put pressure? When do you move to some form of sanction? And to be clear here, these aren't sanctions. These are like the EU makes these you know billions and billions and billions of euro payments over the years to Hungary because as a poor member of the European Union, they get money for things like infrastructure mm-hmm. projects that Orban has flagrantly used siphoned for his own, off, just yeah. siphoned off and rich his buddies, right? And I think one of the rationales for not punishing him for not withholding this money, imposing conditions has been, well, if we do that, you know, he might go all autocratic on us. Well, he has, you know, like that Way train left late. the station a while he ago. He about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So like, I think they should be bringing the hammer down. Uh, you know, it's not not kicking them out of the EU, though. It is saying we're going to use the leverage we have as EU to 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 essentially sanction your autocracy. You, you can't get um, a, a spigot of EU money if you're using it to corruptly fund your authoritarian politics. And you can't expect the European Parliament and the European institutions to kind of look the other way and not call out behavior that is profoundly undemocratic and against the values of Europe. Yeah, hopefully they will actually do something this time. Yeah. They've been talking about doing something since 2018. They've been talking about, yeah, they've been talking for a while. Yeah. <laughs> um, a few quick ones to close. So quickly on Saudi Arabia. Uh, ben, I don't know if you saw the Saudi-owned Live Golf Tour hired a lobbying shop to work over uh, members of Congress, hopefully not with a bone saw. It's a shop led by former Congressman Benjamin Quayle, former Vice President Dan Quayle's son, as we've discussed previously, uh, former Bush administration flack, Ari Fleischer, is now doing their PR, which we do have to thank the Saudis because that meant that Ari stopped doing his his annual uh, 9-11 like, <laughs> yeah, tweet remembrance. Yeah. It's all about yeah, me Yeah, he shifted thing. from remembering every minute of 9-11 to to go and work for the Saudis, yeah. who, whose money may have had something to yeah, do that, with it. That shot clear. Yeah. So the point is, the Saudis are not hiring the best and brightest here. And I'm just curious how many no's you think you get uh, from better firms before you end up hiring Dan Quayle's son. I mean, that's just someone who screams out, like, I will work for anybody for any price, you mm-hmm. know? And I think the Saudis kind of like having that. They also have this kind of weird royal family view of politics where they work with people's kids, That's right? True. So whether it's Jared yeah, Kushner, Kushner or, or Ben Quayle, it's not a good good for Ben's. I will say <laughs> on this live tour thing, I've been reading about this, and and I have to say, like, uh, I'm going to call out Phil Mickelson as a particularly annoying guy because he talks about what he's doing with the Saudis. As like he's Mahatma Gandhi taking on I know. the PGA. They, they hate the PGA Tour. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The PGA Tour probably does suck. They also I know, they, but they like, hire their own lobbyists, by the way. Like him but and yeah. a bunch of multi-million, if not billionaire golfers going to take big checks in the Saudis, being framed as some kind of like social justice crusade. It's a I bit know. much for me. Greg know? Norman's going to DC also to advocate for the live tour. I will say what the Saudis always do is they reveal the worst of ourselves. It's like the Russians coming in behind the internet content. No, they see the corruption in American society and they just glom onto it, right? So again, to let them off the hook a little bit, like we are very willing participants in the Saudi corruption of our own culture and politics. Yeah, we're, we're ready to take the checks. Uh, I know I'm broken record on this, but I also just saw there's a report that uh, the Times reported that right as the Russians were about to invade Ukraine, Saudi Arabia's kingdom holding company invested more than $600 million into three Russian energy companies. And then over the summer, the Saudis have doubled the amount of oil they were buying. 
uh, from the Russians. So no more fist bumps is my point. And I want you to keep doing this because all those people who wrote those takes in like Politico magazine or in the op-ed pages before that Biden trip who were like, the smart, real politique people, yep. you know, you ideologues over here, you young, crazy idealists who care about silly things like journalists getting chopped up. You don't understand how the world really works. In the, in the real world, where us hardened op-ed writers uh, reside <laughs> and, you know, sit over hardened the Hardened op-ed writers. My you know, we understand that you have to get into the room with the Saudis to deal with the oil crisis. Well, in fact, these people have done nothing but fuck us on the oil crisis, <laughs> yeah. like from before, during and after the Biden visit. And yep. and like the real politique, the Saudis are laughing at your columns. Like you people who are writing columns to be friendly to the Saudis, like the, the, the Saudis are the ones laughing at you because you're such an easy mark. Do you think they got pitched by Ben Quayle to write those? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm sure that the, the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies probably like spilled a lot of ink on this uh, on behalf of Ben Quayle, you know, earning that that monstrous retainer. Incredible. Uh, speaking of Russia, Ben, I know, you know, you're covering the hard news about Russia and Ukraine in the interview today. But there was one report I did want to flag uh, for us which was an article by Medusa News, which is an excellent uh, Russian investigative yes. news outlet, uh, which said that President Putin is increasingly concerned about Kremlin officials and other elites drinking too much, boozing too hard. Uh, Putin reportedly demanded that officials put out healthy lifestyle propaganda uh, and wants Russia to build out exercise infrastructure. So big opportunity here for SoulCycle, I guess. Sources told Medusa that top ministers, they're dealing with stress, uh, from the war by by hitting the bottle. Some are missing events. Some are slurring their speech in official settings. I wonder... Some are falling off balconies. Yeah. Some, Yeah, I, like, this is a weird one. I, I wonder if this... I mean, I believe they're reporting, but um, I wonder how real a problem this is. Like, if Putin tells you to chill with the drinking, I feel like you do. Yeah, except I think that... I think it's true that when they started to try to pull back the the vodka consumption late in the Soviet Union, it didn't go down too oh, well. Oh, no, it was yeah. incredibly unpopular. Exactly, right? So, like, telling a bunch of Russians that they can't drink vodka, like, has ended, like, regimes <laughs> before right, in the right, past, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, I, I don't know. Like, uh, one other way to look at it is that if Putin starts really trying to withhold the booze, uh, it could erode some of that uh, support that he counts on from, from his inner circle. I don't know. I mean, Dmitry Medvedev, to me, there's no way, just look at a picture of that guy every five years for like the last 25 years. His face just looks like he drinks like Nick Cage levels of <laughs> vodka and leaving Las Vegas, you know, like, and it would account for the insane rants about like nuclear annihilation. It's true. So there are people point. like Medvedev that jump out to me as like, I'd like to know their daily intake. And again, you know, we've, we've mentioned this story before, but when we were both at the G8 at Camp David in like I don't know, 2012, maybe when Putin sent Medvedev in his stead, uh, it was well known that the Russian delegation got shit-faced and tried to order like 47 cheeseburgers <laughs> yeah, at three yeah. in the morning from the Navy mess. Yeah, they cleaned out the vodka. I, I also uh, remember going to some of these summits. I remember being at a G8, uh, maybe in the last G8 that Russia was at. Um, and there was like a bunch of rush like you go in at like 10 in the morning you're like there's always a bar and i'd always wonder like who's hitting the bar at like 10 in the morning and then you look over and be like oh the russian the russians are the ones doing that so yeah there was like a you know culturally a little bit more intake them and people at airports you know me at the airport uh, i i'm more than willing to be that guy really like 10 a.m uh, 
Well, because uh, to me, it's part of it. It's part of a sleep strategy, right? Oh, so okay. I was when I was flying back from Taiwan, I'll, I I hit that like the lounge. I got lounge access, and I was that guy with like the the open bottle of red wine at like you know throwing back glasses, bring it back to your table, and people are looking at you like you are well, true if, degenerate. If you got an international flight, that's a different thing than like flying from like Toledo to you know somewhere in Michigan. M- my strategy is to like get on the plane, eat the meal, and pass out, and that that is definitely aided by some of that bad like Cabernet they have at the airport. No doubt, no doubt. Uh, Final story before we get to Ben's interview. So we have to talk about the scandal rocking the world of international chess. Here's the backstory. So a world chess champion named Magnus Carlsen, that's a a perfect Perfect chess name. name, He lost in the third round of the biggest chess tournament in North America to a 19-year-old Twitch streamer named Hans Moke Nyman. Nyman was the lowest ranked player at the tournament. Uh, Carlsen was a world champion. The improbable outcome, that upset victory, led uh, to allegations that Nyman must have cheated, including one theory that he used electronic anal beads to receive vibrating messages signaling the right move. This theory was spread on Twitter by Elon Musk. No surprise there, Mm. given he's a well-known pain in the ass. Uh, Our producer, Saul, insisted that we call this segment the Queen's Gambut. That's good. So marinate Leave on that. Leave that in. Leave that uh, in. Ben, do you want to poke or plug any holes in this story? <laughs> uh, I I just think someone needs to get to the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I I was almost re- regretful that you brought this to my attention mm. <laughs> because uh, apologies. Then I no I spent some time. Exp- oh, you went down like, rabbit hole. Not not that rabbit hole. Uh-huh. I mean, I went down the rabbit hole sure, of sure, speculation sure. around chess, this. Chess, chess, chess. Yeah, like we kept. I was on the right side of the internet here. Um, I, I, I don't know, man. Like, I, can you imagine wanting to win a chess match that bad? Nope. Like, I, I just, I cannot. I, that, that's my main takeaway is like, some things are just not worth it. It's one thing when the Astros were like banging garbage cans <laughs> in center Do field. Uh-huh. Like, yeah. it's a different thing when, you know, you go the bead route. Uh, the, I mean, these games last a long time, right? Yeah. I mean, I saw searching for Bobby Fischer. <laughs> also like, yeah, you also probably need a, a, Someone helping you out, signaling the right moves. I'm not sure how that works. What is the meeting like where one comes up with this strategy? You know, like who is in that meeting? How many people? Like, how do you get from uh, decision to implementation? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you know? I don't know. It sounds like a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Uh, okay, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, and when you come back, you will hear Ben's interview about all the latest uh, in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So stick around for that. I'm really pleased to be joined by Ilya Panamarenko, who is a defense reporter with the Kiev Independent, someone who's been an essential resource for the view from Ukraine, news from the front throughout this war. So, Ilya, thanks so much for joining us uh, from Warsaw. Sure, thanks. And I, I should say, you're, you're in Warsaw, you're usually obviously in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to just start, we're, we're going to go into some of the, the recent events, but just stepping back, we've been talking about the impact of the Ukrainian offensive how would you describe the importance of that offensive, both in military terms, but also in terms of the, the morale and the political mood in, in Ukraine generally? What's been the impact of the, the last two or three weeks? Uh, you know, people love looking at maps showing, you know, territorial gains and which are impressive, especially given our very low expectations that we had before the the whole thing started. But the most important thing about this 
is about this offensive operation is the fact that Ukrainian military managed to do something absolutely no one expected it um, to do, which is to derail one of the most important Russian supply lines coming from Russia and going south uh, across the city of Skupensk. We are uh to the city of izum and uh this supply line is one of the most important and it uh keeps um reinforce reinforcements flowing to northern Donbass. so thanks to this supply line uh, russia was able to sustain the northern axis yeah um trying to cover up the whole of Donbass, the whole of region and um that that's about the city of Izium, and uh, that was uh, the point from which it was rendering pressure on cities of Slavyansk and Kramatorsk, trying to encircle them, isolate them from uh, uh, from the rest of Ukraine, and cut them off supplies with the whole Russian military force grouping in it. So, without this access, without this access, um, it effectively may go and kiss goodbye to all chances to take Donbass, the whole of Donbass, yeah. complete, which was one of the one of the key goals behind this new phase of the uh, of the Russian war. So basically that's the most important thing. But morally, yes, morally um the um, effect demonstrates to the Ukrainian audience, to Ukrainian military, to global community, to global governments saying that with the help of uh, good strategy, of uh, good um, operational security, um, surveillance, command control, Western weapons, Ukraine, uh, Ukraine can win and can win not only, you know, token symbolic um, territorial gains, but also achieve um operational successes uh, just like what we have seen so it simply says that you know ukraine has a very realistic chance to win this war yeah well you see um russia you know making moves in the last 24 hours or so in the direction of a fuller mobilization uh we were supposed to hear or the report was we we're going to hear from vladimir putin today but that seem to have moved to the, to tomorrow, um, but there's been you know obviously reports of both them mobilizing more people within Russia and then moving to formally annex some of the so-called you know totally bogus Russian-created you know people's republics um, you know to have referenda that could lead to annexation as was the case in Crimea. Um, what do you make of that Russian response? Uh, it feels to me like as you said. Initially, they wanted to conquer Kiev. They downgraded from that. Then they wanted to conquer the whole Donbass. Now they're downgrading to uh, chunks of the Donbass, um, but also seem to recognize that they need more reinforcements through mobilization. How do you look at the Russian reaction to, to their losses on the battlefield? Well, I'm not insistent of, on such an opinion, but from my perspective, what, what we have seen um, throughout the last several hours in terms of, you know, the uh, referendas and all this um, mobilization is, just, is basically the Kremlin admitting that the war cannot be won by the means that it is using right now. 
and by the and with the resources that it has right now it's 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 over it's just impossible it's something you know this it's it's it looks very realistic you know such a such a perspective just because you know uh russia has this situation as if uh you had something that costs let's say one thousand dollars to buy and you want you you really need to buy this but what you have is just like uh, 50 bucks and you do not have a realistic chance to raise as much money as you need within you know uh, foreseeable future so that's failure you can't do that you can't do that because you have been uh, stripped of such an ability to do this and up to this day it's been seven months of war close to that but it's up to this day we know it for sure that russia is falling short of manpower for such a long front line such an intense front line Ukraine is the basically the country the size of France and it's long. And this is uh by the way one of the reasons why Russia failed so miserably in Kharkiv Oblast because it simply had not had not enough troops um to keep all the whole of the front line you know strong enough. So it has to redeploy, it has to make choices, and meanwhile Ukrainians are pushing here and there. So it falls short of manpower. It's just um, at this at this point, with the Ukrainian mobilization, because Ukraine has been has been spending months to mobilize uh, more manpower and get more weapons from the West and you know create a, a greater military, a bigger military uh, than than what Russia have here in Ukraine. So, all in all, it has a situation where um, it needs to mobilize. It needs to bring more power, but. At the same time, it's been very weak in terms of, you know, generating more high quality force. We have been seeing those Wagner mercenaries, have been seeing prisoners um, being recruited. Uh, We've been seeing, um, you know, the so-called Third Army Corps that they have been trying to to form close to Moscow. And uh, realistically, it's not a combat capable force, especially when it comes to the Third Army Corps, which is basically a collection of 50-year-old men who <laughs> have a lot of banking loans to pay, and they simply go go out there and sign contracts just for money. And yeah. that's it. This is not the way you create a couple of capable, motivated, and uh, effective military force. Absolutely not. You know, this is one of the things that are very common for the Kremlin regime. It's, it's like being being impressive but on the paper yeah you know, it's, it's the very essence of it it's impressive but just on the paper it, it it is out there to create an impression intimidate you but what stands behind is basically a shit show yeah in many ways in many regards it's what well what was special about the soviet military so, but yeah we have you have a problem you do not have a man, enough manpower you do not have um enough resources and you have to mobilize to bring more manpower yeah you have to do this the problem is that um russia does not have infrastructure for a full-fledged mobilization effort yeah uh, it does not have training grounds uh, it does not have enough vehicles and hardware to you know form you know actual combat combat formations it's not enough to just mobilize you know a crowd of million people you have to organize train these people um you know, given specialities, given them officers, surgeons, and so you have to organize, you have to create an organization. 
and uh, they fall short of, of officers and instructors and surgeons to get ahead of those people, to lead them in combat, to train them. So because the whole of Russia's military capacity is involved, already involved in, in here in Ukraine, and there have been severe losses in uh, in com- when it comes to um, commissioned officers and NCOs, Russian NCOs, they have always had this problem in this regard. So yeah. now with, with all the casualties, that's a problem. So uh, simply saying they need more manpower and they cannot generate um, enough forces for to go on. So in this situation, they have to stick to the, what they basically do when they have it hard to go on emotions, to go on political sides, to go on nuclear intimidation, to, 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 to do something, you know, disastrous and, you know, desperate, pretty desperate, because all other realistic and, you know, rational options are not, not um, available anymore. So here they go again with the um, mobilization threat threats, but they, uh, um, you know, the referenda and recognition and the annexation, they need to intimidate, you know, the same thing was the nuclear intimidation. They're not actually doing anything about the nuclear plants, you know, the Parisian nuclear plants, yeah. but they have to create, they have to use this as the, you know, source of fear intimidation to force Western governments, Ukrainian society, you know, the world opinion into, into saying that, you know, to hell with all those guys, you know, it's easier to just uh, make an agreement with Russians. Yeah. Well, so if they're from this position of weakness and you talk about Ukraine obviously having an advantage in terms of the will to fight, the society has uh, clearly been mobilized. You mentioned weapons from the U.S. and from the West. Um, what are the most important systems uh, for Ukraine to be getting right now? And as you look to future offensives, potentially, you know, you obviously have ongoing operations in the South. Um, around Kherson, but you know, there's a lot of territory. I'm sure that Ukraine would like to take back. What are the most important systems for Ukraine to be getting that it, it's already getting? And, and are there things that Ukraine would like like to get that it hasn't gotten yet? Um, you know, we're facing the situation in which pretty much any weaponry uh, of the substantial types and classes would be of great use. It's not even about you know advanced weapons. It's something you know super sophisticated like HIMARS systems or something. Sometimes it's just what you need is you know probably not super duper most advanced howitzers for instance artillery. It might be something from the Vietnam War age, but when you have it, a lot of those things. It also involves the problem behind the Ukrainian military right now is that we have mobilized a lot of people. We have a lot of manpower. It's close to 700,000 people. But the problem is that we do not have enough vehicles, weapons to, you know, fully arm uh, all those formations, brigades and battalions. So that's the problem. The the biggest problem is um, the most general problem, let's say, is armored vehicles, tanks, um, armored armored personal carriers so that's why we've been spending months you know saying the artillery as well we've been spending months saying that you know there's no need to you know to waste weeks and months trying to send ukraine uh, like m777s sophisticated super important so yeah they're fine they're nice but you know it's better to have let's say 100 but old howitzers from vietnam yeah, yeah. instead of just five 
but something new. So we need to from form new battalions because you know when you go on offensive, not not in defense, you gotta have a lot of had a lot of power. So, but um, those are very general things. But you know what what would be a great use is communication equipment, all those various things. We have problems with our um, class of drones, um, the niche of drones of uh, cheap, small, uh, simple, and um, expandable drones, surveillance drones. And we need thousands of, of them, and they need to be like wasted like expendables. So we have problems yeah. in this niche. So basically, you know, I recently had a conversation with one of the biggest Ukrainian charities that do uh, assistance. They actually buy military, like military-grade equipment from abroad for the Ukrainian military. So what they told me is that you know we need every, everything you can get, but uh, specifically, it's it's all about the communications, communications and communications. I, well, I imagine that that's a really interesting answer. You just need volume and speed, mm-hmm. um, and I'm sure there's an urgency to 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 liberate territory so that Putin doesn't obviously try to wear down. Mm-hmm. Uh, the West and some more of attrition, but also because, you know, I think, like you said, people look at the map, but there are people living under occupation, right? And you did some powerful reporting. I wanted to ask you what, what you'd heard from people that recently liberated um, in some of these regions around Kharkiv. Um, and, and how does that impact the kind of urgency of trying to liberate other territories where you know people are probably living under similar circumstances? Well, yeah, this, the sooner Russians get out, the less, you know, innocent victims, you know, victims of uh, wrongdoing, Russian wrongdoing, Russian disorder, Russian low discipline there will be uh, on the civilian side. Because one of the things that I keep seeing after I enter um, recently occupied territories that was in Bucha, for instance, close to Kiev, now it's in Kharkiv, is that you know Russian Russian military in general has a very low standard of um, you know humanitarian law obedience obedience to humanitarian law they very low standards of um, of communications of cooperation with, with the civilian population in general you know the Russian military is not formed by the most educated most most trained most disciplined people and you know the the level of attitude it is understandable. So, you know, it's about tortures, about cruelty, it's about marauding. So there are lots of things that you know no one wants to see behind those lines. And yeah. in many cases, we do not even see what's what's happening behind those things. So yeah, people, you know, I would just to give you an impression of what's happening. You know, when. Uh, when you go there to a recently liberated village, you meet elderly people, mostly elderly women, because men, they either have flats or they have been imprisoned or they are doing something somewhere. So when they, they're not around, because it's not a good idea when you're a young, strong male and to live under Russian occupation because you have a potential... Um, yeah, you could be conscripted into the Russian yeah, army. Yeah. Not necessarily get conscripted. You can be suspected of being part of resistance fighting you know fighting okay fights. okay and also um or or um former ukrainian military servicemen from Donbass veteran so it's not a good idea to be a, a young male under russian occupation so there will be a lot of questions to you yeah and you know people are 
even in those locations where Russians did not have like outright mass uh, war crimes, such as Bucha or Izum, for instance, but you know, in those locations, people are wary of you know of this constant fear. Anything could happen to you because um, they can come to anyone for anything to do anything to to you and there is nothing that stops them yeah people were always afraid so just to kind of you know wrap this up because we you have the picture of the success that ukraine has demonstrated um russia the problems that they have um the urgency obviously of of trying to liberate populations that are under grave danger some of whom you know, have been depopulated. Um, what what is Ukraine's definition of of success? Um, you know, is it is it about reclaiming a certain amount of territory? Is it about destroying the Russian forces there? Like, how should we think about um, what the ultimate objective is here? Recognizing that that's not going to be achieved, you know, in the next few months, but this is probably a matter. Uh, of years, uh, but but how should people in the U.S. and the West think about, you know, what what are we supporting Ukraine to do here? No, of course, following this offensive and even before that, the popular morale morale is very high. It was very high. It was never low. Um, and uh, in general, society and the political leadership they say they expect getting back to. The borders in 1991 is the the victory that we want. We yeah. want all all our territories deoccupied and got back and given us back. Yeah. But realistically, um, realistically, I'm I'm always trying to be as as realistic and conservative as possible. I think realistically, and optimistically for us, this war is about. Um, stripping Russia of its immediate ability to go on war, to go on with this war, yeah. either defensively or offensively. So this can be done by um, stripping it, uh, its military group in, in, in Ukraine of its supplies by derailing its logistics, like ultimately derailing its logistics, undermining its uh, morale. So... We have we have to go to the situation in which Russia just can't go on anymore immediately, immediately in this moment and in the foreseeable future. So that's why um, we we as Ukraine, I'm almost sure about this, is that the Ukrainian military we go on uh, making strikes upon certain locations, certain points that are absolutely necessary for you know for keeping this Russian war machine running here in Ukraine. It's uh, about cities like Melitopol, for instance, yeah. uh, in in the Ukraine south. If you, if you take the city, if you take it under firm control, you basically divide the Russian occupied south by halves. Yeah. Then you get a chance to cut the Crimea off. Another strike. So it's it's not really about you know killing all the Russian soldiers here in Ukraine, all of them, or uh, retaking you know uh, all the territories of Ukraine step by step, one by one. It's about, you know, delivering very precise and very effective strike that effectively stop the this organism from going on. Yeah. 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 Uh what would be a result of this and what would be uh what would the frontline map look like 
as a result of such protests? I'm not sure. I'm, I believe yes. that from our point of view, the optimistic, realistic scenario for the next months would be the autumn campaign, the fall campaign, which is ongoing. And as a result of this campaign, by raining season, by winter time, the Ukrainian military will be trying to to face winter time in the best shape possible, in the best situation possible, from the point of view of control of um, this crucial points or territories, possibly retaking Kherson by winter time. That would be a huge victory. Then it's yeah. winter time. The winter time would be about you know surviving as a nation, because civilian infrastructure would be in grave danger. Uh, power plants, thermal stations, uh, water supplies, communications. Russians would be doing a lot of harm to those, you know, because they grow and the closer they get to the actual defeat, the more desperate they become. Yeah, that's that's what's happening. So we expect harsh and complicated winter that we will have to survive as a nation behind the lines, but also that would be a huge challenge to the Ukrainian military and Russian military alike. Um, from the point of view of you know winter war, that would be an ex- exceptional challenge on on the infrastructure. But I, I don't think that we'll be having this. The winter campaign would be full of results in terms of um, yeah royal gains. Then we go with spring campaign, which would be something crucial. And as a result of this, you know, key crucial campaign by summertime next year, we're going to be having something possibly. Something that would be could be possibly declared as the Ukrainian victory in yeah. this war. So I think that's the realistic, optimistic situation for us. We'll see what happens next. You know, this war has been so chaotic, uh, so full of surprises, so hard to predict that you know anything can happen. But so far, yeah. we have the situation moving in this direction. Yeah. No, I think that's a really useful answer because I think people here okay, we take all the territory and it seems so difficult. You know, obviously Crimea uh, would be a very hard military target, for instance, in parts of the Donbass. But what you're describing is the kind of methodical effort to destroy Russia's ability to wage war in Ukraine, which doesn't require taking every inch. It requires taking the key areas that cut off supply chains and isolate Russian forces. That's, and exactly, what happens. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what happened to, to, with this Kharkiv Oblast offensive. Yeah. The yeah. Ukrainian military, they did not storm cities and wipe them yeah. out of, of the earth face. They would bypass them, isolate their garrisons, make them believe that they are surrounded and make them uh, uh, surrender or flee leaving those cities intact and leaving a lot of hardware and, and munitions behind them. And then moving in, also bypassing and surrounding um, cities, you know, taking road junctions under control, railways under control, uh, destroying supplies, uh, wreaking havoc, you know, deep, in, deep behind lines. And in the result, we have the, basically the whole region liberated without, you know, major fighting and without, you yeah. know, destroying cities. But what Russia does, about this is they go foot by foot, destroying everything it has in front of it with artillery, yeah. be it Ukrainian defenses or cities. You know, they play the dumb war. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, that's going to be, you know, that's only going to get worse the more they lose. And you guys have a, yeah. uh, well, the weather, a tough winter. But I think what everybody's seen is that Ukrainian society is about as resilient as any 
on earth. <laughs> so um, thank you so much, Ilya, for joining us. I um, People should read your stuff. You're on Twitter. People should check out the Kiev Independent. I think people can donate to support the journalism that you guys are doing, which is important. You've been a resource to people around the world in this. So I, I want to encourage people to to provide support to Ukrainian journalists like Ilya who are, who are bringing us this story. Uh, but uh, get some sleep and, and keep in touch. Yeah, thanks. Thanks again to Ilya Punomarenko for joining the show. Um, thanks to all you chess fans out there. Thanks <laughs> yeah. to New England Patriots and the New York Jets. I'd like to learn chess. It's uh, like it's something I, I'm learning. I know how to play it, but like I've got my kid. Like I feel like Man. I don't know. I've always wanted to actually like be good at chess, and I'm not. I don't have the patience. I feel like it's like yeah. a lot of memorization, which I suck at. Yeah, and I suck at math too. So I'll probably just watch NBA. You should try Go. That's even harder. Yeah, I checkers guy over here. There we go. Kind of we'll play checkers next time. Yeah. Talk to you guys next week. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Saul Rubin is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth, who upload our episodes and videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia. <laughs>